Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Journey Within Podcast. Um, one, I always say I've got a special guest with me today. This is probably the most special guest that I've, that I've had on so far, my, my father, Earl. Um, anybody that that's followed me on social media or on uh, all the TV shows or anything that I do, you know that um, Dad's usually with me, uh, probably about half the time in the field. So you see a lot of them on TV and in social media and so forth. And figured, what better way for for Father's Day than to have Dad on the podcast here? Um, one thing through all the TV shows, you never really get to hear the the story, right? So you you see me and you see him on TV, you never get to hear the the story of how I actually got into hunting through him or, or his story of, um, growing up in Michigan and how he got into hunting. So this would be interesting. I've, I've traveled a lot with dad. So I think I know just about all of his stories, but every once in a while he'll hit you with one that, that I've never heard. Now I've heard a lot of repeat stories, but, um, mostly everybody listening is not. So how are you doing today, dad? Doing great. And, uh, yes, you'll hear something new probably today. Yeah, there we go. And some repeat stories. Definitely, definitely some repeat stories. So that is uh, um, very common to tell me, hey, I got a new story for you, but it's probably one that I've heard, I don't know, about 35 times before. So, uh, and some of this, I guess I was going through the list when I get ready to do podcasts, I always um, go through initial, well, initial question list that I have sitting with me. Um, just so as, as I'm talking with somebody, I've, I've got the list of what I would like to cover. And I have to admit, I've never asked you how you got into hunting. Okay. So this is probably be a new story. Since this is going to be a new story. Oh, yeah. and, and it has to go back to my grandfather. Okay. My grandfather, at the age of 17, left a city in Norway called Friedrichstadt. Okay. Um, and he came to the United States, ended up arriving on Ellis Island, uh, had no money. He, he was from a poor farm in Norway. Mm-hmm. And because he had no money, and he wanted to go where other Norwegians lived, and that was around the Great Lakes, he started walking. Didn't have a map. 
from New York. From New York. Okay. Didn't have any money. And what? You, what? Roughly what year would this have been? Um. Ooh. Probably like nineteen eighteen. Okay. Okay. So a hundred years ago, over a hundred years. Yeah. Just over right, 100, right around a yeah, hundred years. Ago. Yeah. Right around a hundred years. So he walked down alongside the Erie Canal because if you could get on the Erie Canal, that would take you to the Great Lakes, and he knew that. Michigan and Wisconsin and so forth, mm-hmm. where a lot of Norwegians were, were on the Great Lakes. Okay. So then he started walking along the Great Lakes till he got to the bottom of Lake Erie uh-huh. and then said, okay, now I have to get to Lake Michigan. Again, he ate what he could eat. Uh-huh. He begged wherever he could beg because he didn't have any money. Yep. Walked across Michigan and eventually ended up on Lake Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, he met my grandmother. Uh, Bessie Anderson, and lo and behold, a few years later, my father was born. Okay. But in that time, my grandpa died at the age of 25 with pneumonia because people were just, there wasn't the treatment. There wasn't the medicine. Medicine, there wasn't the treatment. So here's my grandma with a young son and a young daughter, um, and she didn't know what to do. Mm Mm-hmm. So she ended up marrying my, and her name was Gregerson, okay? Okay. Ended up marrying a man by the name of Frank Peterson, Mm -hmm. who was out of Ludington, Michigan. Uh, He was Swedish. But my new grandfather, and he adopted my dad, and so that's how my dad's name went from Gregerson to Peterson. Uh Uh-huh. During World War II, Grandpa Frank, or excuse me, World War I, Grandpa Frank was one of the last people to arrive in France to fight in World War I. Unfortunately, if you know anything about the history of World War I, there was a lot of shelling, Uh trench warfare, and gas. Uh Unfortunately, Grandpa Frank got hit with mustard gas severely. So from the time he was sent back to the United States, he basically couldn't really do any physical work because his lungs had been scorched. And one thing, because all early immigrants all had a great work ethic, he found a job. Mm -hmm. He became a self-employed bookbinder. And a bookbinder is a person who, in the old days, your books would get used so much, individual copies, Mm -hmm. that the cover would fall off. Mm -hmm. And so he put the new covers on, and that's how he made money for my grandma, Bessie, my grandpa, Frank. And now they have a, an, another son, and so the two by adoption, and then uh, also my Uncle Norman. Okay. Um, what ta- when is this? This is in the time of the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. And during the Great Depression, people didn't have money. And so the bookbinding business went really bad. Yeah. He didn't have any work. But there was a farm that was located in rural Pentwater, Michigan, that was for sale. And farm, it was, they had been taken back by farm credit. Uh-huh. And so they, got a, they went out there with, to get a 35-acre farm where they could raise their own food, have their own animals, and 
basically live off the land. So they're going to subsistence farm. Subsistence okay. farm. And that farm today is from where we're sitting right here is about 20 miles away. Okay. Um, now, unfortunately, there was a monthly mortgage payment, including interest of $5 a month. Mm-hmm. They didn't have that money. And after several warnings, it looked like they were going to lose the farm. They'd already taken the money that from the house they had in town. That had gone on the farm, but they couldn't make the $5 a month. Uh-huh. So something about the work ethic that you have and I have and my father had. My father left home at the age of 12 to support the family. Okay. So he was in eighth grade, uh-huh. never graduated from eighth grade, but went out basically to work because the other four members of his family would not have a home unless he could get some them money. Okay. So what he did at first, he said, okay, you know, I, I know how to work. I always, I've always worked as a little boy. Uh, we raised all of our food. I, I took care of animals. So he went to work for neighboring farmers. Okay. And he started out at 50 cents a day plus room and board. Uh-huh. Um, and my dad always liked to eat yeah. because he, he grew up poor. So that meant wherever you were working, you got to eat all you wanted yep. to. And he did this sending enough money back. He sent all of his money back, uh-huh. actually, to the family so that they could pay their $5 a month, uh-huh. have a home to live in, and then buy a few things, seed for the farm and yep. all the things like that. From the time when my my dad was 12 till he was 17, that was his life. Okay. He was a, I'm not going to say a migrant farm worker, but he was a traveling farm worker. Okay. Wherever he could go and eventually even earned up to a dollar a day. Okay. 1917, or excuse me, when he was 17, uh, he looked around and says, you know, I don't know if I want to do this for the rest of my life. He uh-huh. says, I'm making a dollar a day. I get my room and board. I love the food. But he looked and there was one more opportunity out there. And that opportunity was the army. Uh-huh. Because he said, you know, they pay more. They pay, give your food, but they also give you your clothes. Mm. So my dad ended up at the age of 17, somehow joining the Army when you were supposed to be 18. Um, and he loved that. And he was a very, my father was a very physical man. And eventually, within a couple of years, became a first sergeant, a training sergeant. Okay. On December 7th. 1941, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, my dad was stationed on Coronado Island off of uh, San Diego. And that was the second largest naval base in the Pacific. Mm -hmm. And when the Japanese attacked and sank all the battleships and ships in uh, Pearl Harbor, no one knew where they were coming next. They just went off. No one, no one just knew. And so dad was down. By late on the day of, of December 7th, he and his men had dug foxholes uh-huh. on Coronado Island, and they were going to be the line of defense because they no one knew where the Japanese going to land uh-huh. at Coronado Island and then move west across the United States. Um, they didn't land. But one thing now, Dad had a definite permanent job because if you remember history about the beginning of, of World War II, the United States had a relatively small army. Mm-hmm. They were at war with the Japanese uh, 
they quickly declared war on Nazi Germany mm-hmm. and on uh, Mussolini's Italy. So what did the United States need? They had, in World War II, probably three or four times the number of men under arms than they had in World War, at the beginning of World War, excuse me, World War I con, uh, compared to World War II. So my dad's job was young men were signing up to go to war because mm-hmm. the, the attack on Pearl Harbor, uh, young men all over just were going out of school or doing yeah. their work and they were going. So my dad's job was to get those guys through basic training, and my dad was a very strong young man, and, uh-huh. and I can just imagine that he was one heck of a, of a drill sergeant, yeah. uh, and send people out. Uh-huh. And they were going both to the Pacific campaign and, and to Europe. Dad was there right until the war was getting done and it was getting about the time of uh, the D-Day. Uh-huh. And he said, okay, he says, I can't be the trainer. I've got to go to war. Uh-huh. And so even though he'd done it from uh, 41 up for like three and a half years, he went to Europe. Okay. And well, he didn't uh, have to. He didn't have to. No, okay. he, it was one of those things. He said, I can't train all these men. I've got to go And do send them off. Yeah. Yes. So dad went to Europe and he's told me a few stories, but the stories he told me about going to Europe were um, basically nice stories. Yeah, he didn't want yeah, he, he, he told the stories about how he and his friends uh, tried a French cognac for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and bottom line was he really did not talk about his war experiences very much, which is common to mm-hmm. World War II because they saw a lot of soldiers saw some awful things. Um, and when I would ask him questions, he, he would just say, I did what I had to do. Mm-hmm. Um. The day before my father passed away, um, at December 30th of 2002, he asked me to sit alone with him in his bedside. And he told me the things that he would never tell me while we were growing up. Mm -hmm. Because my father was not a hunter. Mm -hmm. He knew I always wanted to be a hunter, but he wasn't a hunter. Mm -hmm. And he saw some things that made him never want to shoot a rifle again. Mm-hmm. I know, I think there were a lot of young men from the United States that did the same thing. Would my father, when I was young, I, I, I was enamored by watching television shows, watching Davy Crockett on mm-hmm. TV, and I really wanted to learn to hunt. We had a strong work ethic on growing up, and I just thought everybody, as soon as you were able to, uh, after school, you worked, and mm-hmm. then all summer, you worked six days a week, you went yeah. to church on Sunday. That's the way I thought everybody worked. Yeah. I can remember at the age of five, hoeing uh, strawberries all day long uh-huh. and working extremely hard. Um, it was a very loving family, but both my father and mother uh, definitely had a work ethic, uh-huh. and it transferred over to all three of their children. Um. But my dad knew I wanted to hunt. He didn't have any rifles of any kind. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't remember the exact year, but I must have been around 10 or 11. And he bought me for them a single shot Ithaca 22. Okay. Uh, 
it had the uh, lever action model. Mm -hmm. And so that's where, how I started to practice. Um, he had, we had a neighbor, neighbor that lived down the road. His name was Bob and Bob was a bird hunter and a deer hunter and so forth. And he asked Bob, well, would you take Earl out? Mm -hmm. And Bob says, well, sure. We can go shoot squirrels with his 22, but he probably needs a shotgun. So my dad said, okay, I'll buy him a shotgun. So when I, when my dad said he bought those, what he did was trade a place where somebody could put a sign on our farm okay. along the road uh -huh. advertising a gun shop. Okay. So they got the first 22 came for the first sign. Uh, -huh. uh the really old single shot 12 gauge uh came for the second sign. Uh -huh. Sign and those were the two weapons I started started out with. Now, I should say I went with my dad to deer camp. Mhm. Mm because even as a very young boy, uh, I can remember when I was six or eight, dad would go out and he would practice with this 30-30. And he was a really good shot out uh -huh. at 100 or 150 yards. Uh -huh. And in Michigan, that's, that's a long shot. That's, that's a long shot yeah. in the old days. And uh, so my dad actually deer hunted back in Michigan for 51 years. Mm -hmm. He never shot a deer. He always said, well, it wasn't really the one I wanted. Uh -huh. Um but he never shot a deer. Mm -hmm. He liked being in deer camp because during the 1950s, after World War II, Michigan probably had as largest number of hunters we'd ever had. Mm -hmm. And that were all of those people came back from the war and a lot of them said, you know, I'd like being with men that had mm -hmm. particularly similar experiences. Mm -hmm. And so going to deer camp was very common. Deer camp for us was a, it was a wooden building that you jack up, put on the back of a farm truck, You'd haul it to the woods, uh -huh. maybe 25 miles away. You'd pull it off there, and it'd sit. Yep. And deer camp was actually about a six- to eight-week affair <laughs> because you would, go, you would go to deer camp, uh -huh. get everything set up, and then there would be two weeks of deer camp. When I'm talking about two weeks of deer camp, but there you were in deer camp for two weeks, and then two weeks to get everything back home. Yep. Um, so my dad loved that part. Mm -hmm. He was always the chief cook mm -hmm. and the bottle washer, making sure everything went right. Yep. Uh, so I went out and was in deer camp when I, before I was able to hunt deer, uh, -huh. uh at that time you could hunt, uh, other animals, uh, small game at age 12 and, and deer at age 14. When I was 14, dad came up with a 30, 30. Uh -huh. Um, I think he took it in trade for somebody that owed him money for something. Okay. So that's how I got my. Open sight, 30-30, uh -huh. and uh, went out that first year. And understand, we were definitely meat hunters because we didn't go to the store. Almost everything we had in our family, we raised at mm -hmm. home on our farm. I shot my first deer at age 14. Uh, it was a doe, mm -hmm. not very big. And, and Dad says, well, next time you probably should try to get one a little bit bigger <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> this this was de this was definitely you know a one-year-old uh -huh. didn't have didn't have spots but they no, were far no, removed. The, the spots were yeah. removed but it it wasn't a giant specimen yeah let's yeah. put it that way okay it was pretty easy to to you clean it up throw it over the shoulder and, off and the you could carry it back to camp and but that that was the first venison um so 
I learned really to hunt by that those experiences, mm-hmm. and, and I've hunted over deer for uh, over fifty years. Um, Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I think there's only been one year since I was legally able to hunt because my my wife and I were in uh, Europe on a study thing um, that I haven't hunted deer. So I've hunted deer from the age of 14. Mm -hmm. I'm now 75 going on 76. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I've got a lot of years of hunting deer in Michigan. Um. The reason I'm talking about this is my love of hunting transferred to you. Mm-hmm. It all three of our children, a Sarah, uh, when I was when she was real young and before you and Aaron were born, she'd follow me out with a bird dog, mm-hmm. and I got my first bird dog in my early 20s, and I love bird hunting, and so she'd follow. Then later Aaron would follow, mm-hmm. and then later you'd follow. Mm-hmm. So it was. It wasn't. They weren't able to hunt. They weren't old enough to hunt. Mm-hmm. But they still loved the hunting adventure. Yeah. And that's, you know, by the time you arrived, uh, I was uh, thirty-six years old. Um, and there were a lot of hunting opportunities, and so you, from the time you were old enough to walk, wanted a toy gun mm-hmm. because you wanted to be a part of those opportunities. And so we, we did when we went, there was deer camp, you'd come to deer camp. And when there was places where we could go put a pup tent up in the snow, we would do that. And we talk about honey and it was just a natural thing around us. All of our neighbors were hunters. Mm-hmm. Uh, not so much today. No, not so much anymore. Um, but a lot of those hunters, because looking, for, you know, we're in a rural area, there aren't a lot of great business opportunities um so a lot of people left our area mm-hmm. right after linda and i graduated from high school in 1965 left our area it's very common for them to come back and retire here mm-hmm. because where they went yes they had a job yes they had a nice house but ooh, they sure like it back in the rural city in the, or a suburb or something yeah, yeah yeah they like it back here in the rural area so that's really how you got started in hunting is that you followed Mm -hmm. and i'm still going to remember what i think was your first you know you had a lot of great your first fantastic hunting experience Mm -hmm. you were 12 years old there was a youth hunt Mm -hmm. for ducks um 
I'm guessing it was like September. It was in September. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. That was my guess. It yep. was in September. Um, and how we did that hunt, it was a jump shoot hunt on the south branch of the Pentwater River, mm-hmm. which is not, it's got brush and trees and, yeah. and logs across the river. It's it's not deep water. It's, it's, it's shallow water. Yep. But you went out there. The limit was five. In a little over two and a half, two, two and a half hours, you had your limit down mm-hmm. and we had them back. I knew right there, since that was something I'd never accomplished before mm-hmm. and never have accomplished mm-hmm. since, that a 12 year old, that as a 12 year old, you had that ability to want to hunt, but mm-hmm. also be very successful about hunting. Yeah. No, I say, I, I still remember. I still remember that. I mean, I still have the, the picture. I mean, they're all brown because it's, it's September. Um, and that September time frame, it's early, so they only fly fly first thing. But, I mean, I still love jump shooting ducks. Yeah. Today, as you know, I, it's, I don't know what it is about jump shooting ducks. I really like it. Yeah. And if we look back to a lot of other hunts we've done on ducks, yeah. we even when we were in the Dakotas, we, we, we would more we'd often yeah. we'd, ju- we'd jump shoot as mm-hmm. opposed to sneaking up on something that's better than sitting in a blind and yeah you know more they're, action they're more they're action. both good um the one is more physical yeah so yeah well that's uh you did hit on and it's something I, i've talked about on the podcast before right so i've uh older brother and an older sister um and both had the same opportunities i guess is the correct word to go and hunt right but mm-hmm. only only one of the three really took it and got got into it and it's the same with with my kids with michelle izzy and christian one one got the passion, right? Right. Um, I'm, I'll talk about Sarah. Sarah uh, has never gone deer hunting. Mm-hmm. She shot a lot of turkeys. She's married to Eric, mm-hmm. and Eric is a loves hunting. From the time he was a child, young child, he's followed his father, and he's now he loves absolutely loves to hunt. And so Sarah, part of that family arrangement where they're eating a lot of wild game mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh she said one time let's let's go uh turkey hunting she did and so she's got some great recipes for very yeah. various various turkey yep. recipes uh aaron on the other hand uh it was you know he followed on the bird hunting he did some bird hunting i've got some great pictures of him with grouse and so forth but it never was a passion it was something he did because, well, dad's going to do it. I'm going to go with dad. Today, how things maybe skip a generation, Aaron's son, Alec, yeah. from the time he could walk, he wanted to hunt. Mm-hmm. And so now Aaron does hunt kind of like my dad did with me. Mm-hmm. He comes to deer camp. He may go out and he's a excellent shot. So every now and then yep. he does shoot a deer yeah. or or I remember one year he shot three. Yep. So what? That would be anybody that's listening. It's uh, two bucks and a doe, so completely legal. <laughs> yeah, completely legal. <laughs> completely legal here in yeah, Michigan. We, we, we do everything completely legal. <laughs> but, um, so, but so Aaron, yes, was a hunter, not an avid hunter, mm-hmm. but the next generation, Alec is as an avid of a hunter as I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And he started when... You know, the rules have changed, so you could go out there um, as an, with an adult. As an apprentice hunter, you can go yes. out. You don't have to be 12, which I think is a great rule because yeah. the sooner, you, and, sooner so. you can get kids out, the better. So, Alec, uh, 
yeah, he, until he, he's now 17. Uh, but until he, he, he was able to hunt on his own, um, he joined me on a lot of uh, hunts, just like yep. he did before, yep. before you could legally go on your own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's uh, anybody that's been watching too. Alex been on the on the shows. He is uh, for a teenager, very very talented in in the outdoor world, um, and more so that is that is drive behind that. Um, real like real real quick before we move move on. I, one of the things I really wanted to 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 talk about not a lo- not long, but kind of just explain you and mom through your working career, right? Because I think that's a big part of, um, like you've mentioned lots of times on the on the work ethic too, right? I think that's been instilled in, in, in me just because of the journey that you guys did and what I had to do at a, at a younger age. But before, um, what's been the difference in hunting in Michigan, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, compared to what it is now? What do you see, like deer well, hunting, what do you, what do you see well, the differences? Okay. Hey guys, are you into keeping your whitetail herd healthy and strong? Go check out Buck Bourbon and their full line of mineral and attractants. Personally, my favorite is 110 proof because I've had some great memories and great deer taken over top of it in the state of Kentucky. Born from bourbon, field tested, wildlife approved. Check them out at buckbourbon.com. Hey everybody, I've been partnered and working with Bass Pro and Cabela's now for a long time. They're your one-stop shop for anything outdoors. Personally, I use them for all my camping and backpack needs for all my backcountry trips. Make sure to check them out at BassPro.com or Cabela's.com. Leopold offers the best optics in the game, bar none. I personally have their Santium binos and never go to the field without their Pro Guide spotting scope. I've got a Mark V on all my rifles, and also don't forget they've got some awesome eyewear as well. For more information, visit Leopold.com. By far, I'm, I'm just going to wild guess. Mm-hmm. But if I take the 50s and 60s, at one time they said Michigan had the largest standing army in the world yep. on November the 15th. Yep, which is because, opening, opening day of deer season here is November 15th. Always has been, hopefully always will be. And so a lot of those people who came back from world war ii and they bring their sons and it was a big family occasion now like my dad there are a lot of those people that were avid hunters in the 50s and 60s and and the 70s mm-hmm. are no longer with us mm-hmm. so i i would guess that we have a hunting base of one half of what we did that time let's say 50 years ago mm-hmm. our hunting base in michigan is is different mm-hmm. um back at that time it, it was more of a, of a long adventure that you would go one or two weeks. You wouldn't yeah. just go a couple of days. And yep. you, you, it was Or an afternoon it, out behind your house. Yeah. Or an afternoon. Yeah. I can remember as a boy, I had one really good year. I saw three deer. Yeah. And that's because there was really no conservation. Mm-hmm. And people shot everything they saw. Mm-hmm. And so the, the numbers didn't have an opportunity to build up. Yep. And so it was a different type of hunting. Mm-hmm. And there was no such thing, you know, if you had a buck license, there was no such thing saying, well, I'm going to wait for one that has eight points. No. There was no such thing. If you saw a buck, you shot the buck. <laughs> you yeah. shot the buck. Yep. And so I think that may have also led to some people deciding at the time, well, maybe I'm not going to hunt yeah. because there isn't as many deer. Since that time, there's so much work that's been done 
both by the state and by individuals, more importantly by individuals, mm. who've changed the idea that you just shoot a deer. Mm. Every every deer you can legally shoot, you just shoot. Mm. Um, to more of a, okay, if we want a really nice deer herd, maybe we let some of those deer get a little mm. older, let those, let those bucks get a little older. And so it's now, I remember that year, um, only seen three deer mm-hmm. and they were they it wasn't like they even walked in front of me i they saw three glimpses three, <laughs> they're running full tilt. <laughs> three, full tilt three three glimpses um two it's not unusual now to see well over a hundred deer sometimes even in a single day yeah. well, but, for, but for sure over a couple of days you're going to see a hundred deer yep. and you're going to see some very nice bucks mm-hmm. and uh that's one of the very good things going back to the work ethic thing um, your mom and I met when we were in high school and we were going to high school at heart. Uh, we were in the same grade as juniors and seniors. Um, I was a poor boy, lived out in the country on a farm. Um, one of the stories I love to tell is because it took so long for the big, long school bus ride. I'd oftentimes walk home. It's two miles, but what's two miles? Compared to an hour and a half on the bus. That's right. Exactly. And so along the way, I don't know how it happened, but one time I stopped in at a bakery. Uh And I didn't have any money, and I walked in there, and I knew Linda from school, and she worked at the bakery uh, some before school and after school, uh, earning money because she wanted to go to college. Mm -hmm. And... uh, all I remember is we talked for a little bit, and she reached in the counter, took a, a Bismarck, I think it was a Raspberry Bismarck, put it in a napkin and gave it to me. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, but I don't have any money. She says, don't worry, I'll take care of it. Uh-huh. <laughs> so there, that happened several times. Uh-huh. We, were, we were really good friends, never dated. Um, we both, however, ended up going to the same college. We both went to uh, Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo. Uh, Linda was studying education, and for what reason I was studying history and political science. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't yeah. really had didn't really have the job in mind at that point, um, but I knew I liked to read. Mm-hmm. I loved history, and I really liked political science. Mm-hmm. Uh, we ended up uh, dating when we were in uh, at Kalamazoo. I remember the first date we had. Um, I asked her if she wanted to go out for dinner, and she said yes. So we went to a place called Robbie's. It was at that time uh, I spent twenty-seven cents on her and twenty-seven cents on me. They were nine-dollar hamburgers, nine-dollar fries, and nine-dollar, or excuse me, nine-cent hamburgers, nine-cent fries, and mm-hmm. nine-cent Coca-Colas. Uh, after that, Linda was the only person. Um, I ever dated and eventually married. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a very similar background in the fact that we both uh, wanted to do better. We both were from families that I would say were definitely not wealthy. Mm-hmm. They were families that scrug- struggled. Mm-hmm. And so we decided we wanted to accomplish some things. Uh, and I never asked this. You both were the first ones to go to college from the families? 
um, from our direct families. Now we may have had an uncle or, or somebody, somebody like that, that from, from your direct family, the direct, first one. Yeah, yeah, from the from the direct direct family. And uh, so on my dad's side of the family, I was the first to go to college. Mm-hmm. Um, and on her side, she had had uncles, but in her direct descendants, she mm-hmm. was the first one to go to college. Um, we were married as as. Uh, halfway through college after our uh, uh well we got let's put it this way engaged after our sophomore year um at that point we decided okay one of the things we were going to try to do is to get through college and not have any college debt seems very familiar to what everybody's <laughs> trying to do now yeah. okay yeah. so we we both worked whenever we could work didn't matter what the job was mm-hmm. so it didn't matter i ran a toy department over our christmas time um, worked on my dad's farm. Linda worked on my dad's farm. Uh, when I say we worked on the farm, uh, yeah, I had manual work, but we would go out at daylight so we could do f- other physical work and get paid by piece rate till time to start work, which was seven o'clock. Yeah. So maybe we'd get in an extra hour and a half mm-hmm. of daylight and we could learn that we were picking fruit or whatever we could do. Mm-hmm. And then we'd do that after all the other work was done on the farm. We'd stay there and work to dark yep. because our whole goal was we wanted to get, go to college uh, and we really wanted uh, to, to eliminate that debt. Um, so we went to college and with a uh, political science and history degree, uh, I didn't really know what to do because mm-hmm. it was either were you going to go get a master's in that or what are you going to do? And it, there was a... <laughs> a family dinner that kind of probably turned the corner for me. Uh, we were sitting at, at a meal with her parents, Linda and I, and her uncle and aunt. And he was bemoaning the fact he was, he was the secretary of a board of education for a rural school in Oceana County. Mm-hmm. And he was bemoaning that they couldn't find teachers. I said, well, how much does the teacher get paid? I think he said, if I remember correctly, $6,200 a year. I said, I'll take that job. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so went back to school and said, okay, this was, this was, I was a senior. Uh-huh. What do I have to do? Well, you got to take all these education classes. Well, that didn't bother me. Yeah. So went straight, transferred into education classes, went back to in the spring for more education classes, went and did my s- student teaching at Ludditon uh in the summer Uh and that fall linda and i were both back in oceana county this was the fall of 1969 um she was teaching in hart junior high school mathematics and i was teaching history social studies geography english all those types of subjects spelling Uh um at elbridge elementary and i was the only the second male teacher ever to be at Elbridge Elementary, and this may sound really funny, but I believe I was only the second teacher at Elbridge Elementary who actually had a college degree. Hmm. Because back in the old days, people that wanted to be teachers would go to something called County Normal. It was like a training school Uh inside of the county where they'd train young people to be teachers. Specifically trained for what they're going to teach in the school. And they were going to be teaching probably multiple grades Mm -hmm. because we're talking small rural schools. And uh, so I found that was really interesting. Um, 
Linda and I, as a side note, Linda and I, that first year, she made more than me. Her entire payment went towards uh, paying off loans. Okay. Part of mine did because we just lived really cheaply. Yeah. So we weren't, a, there wasn't any government loan program. Yeah. But I can honestly say we, within one year, paid off all of our of our student debt. Okay. Um, as we're getting close to that next summer, Linda says, well, what are we going to do in the summer? Because we've always worked. Uh-huh. I said, well, well, let's work on a farm or whatever. At about the same time, there was, farmers were not doing well. They yeah. weren't making, making very much money. And there was a farm that was located within a half a mile of where my school building was. And there was a sign and it said, for sale by owner. I thought, well, what do you have to lose? Mm-hmm. I stopped and introduced myself. He said, oh, yeah, I'd heard you were, you were teaching school. Um, I said, I grew up on a farm. I'd like to buy a farm. I don't have any money. Yeah, don't have <laughs> any <laughs> money whatsoever. None. Well, how can we make this work? <laughs> and he said, well, he said, how about a zero down land contract? Because uh, he said I, he, has an op- he had an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he knew farming was not making very much money, but he was a heavy equipment operator, and there's a big mm-hmm. uh, project uh, that was going to end up being a 10 or 15 year project where his heavy equipment skill, he could work within 30 miles of his home. Mm-hmm. And this was the Ludington, Michigan pump storage project. Um, and so he said, I'll do this. Mm-hmm. You just pay me the interest, make your payments. And uh, he said, I'm, I can make so much more money driving the dozers and things like that. He said, I just don't want to farm anymore. Yep. So that's what Linda decided we were going to do. We were going to farm in the summers. Uh, that meant, however, that we our first crop to harvest was asparagus. Mm-hmm. I have to admit, Linda and I had never eaten asparagus in our life. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't know anything about asparagus. Uh, had a local person here. Uh, who just passed away a few years ago, who was kind of an advisor to us, would say, here's what you have to do. Okay. Because on my f- on the farm with my dad, he made all the decisions. Yep. We never had asparagus. Yes, uh-huh. we had cherries. We had apples. I understood those things, but I didn't understand asparagus. So he gave us the hints. Uh-huh. Um, at that point, uh, you just figured out how do you get it harvested? Because uh-huh. the, you were out walking. And picking, bending over, picking this asparagus. So no riders at that time. There were no riders. Okay. And so Linda and I at daylight before school, because asparagus starts yep. right around the 1st of May, uh, we'd be out there. Uh, we'd pick by ourselves. If we could find a couple other people to join us, they would. After school, it wasn't uncommon. All the school kids went out and worked. Uh-huh. So after school, we picked asparagus by hand. Got through the first year, had a reasonably good cherry crop. Had a decent peach crop and almost paid off that farm in year number one. The whole land contract. The whole land contract. Okay. Uh, because we were not living any different. We we were living yep. in a small rental. Uh, and our goal was we both wanted to, to accomplish more. Uh, the next year, that same uncle who was the secretary of the school board said he wanted to move out of the area and, and he he wanted to start a golf course. Okay. And he had a farm there, right next to the farm that we bought. 
And he, I said, well, how much do you want it for? And he said, well, he says, you roll it like you did really good. And he said, now, I'll sell this to you for X. But he says, I really need the money. And I said, well, how about if I just give you 100% to whatever the sales price was, 100% of the money that we earn, because the other farm can take care of the cost of this farm until we get it paid off. Yep. Um, Linda and I have always been lucky. It helps to be lucky uh-huh. a little bit. Uh, I, I, I've known that. Um, we actually paid that farm off the first year. Just good crops and good it, prices. We had a good and, yeah. crop and a good price. Uh-huh. And it was one of those situations in the fruit business. It's if everybody has a good crop, prices are low. Yep. If everybody has poor crops, nobody can make any money. Yep. But if you're lucky that most people have poor crops and you have a really good crop, that's, when, that's, when that's how you make money. Yep. And we were lucky when Linda and I started um, that we had quite often good crops uh-huh. with good prices. So suffice it to say, during the 70s, Linda and I worked two jobs. We worked on the farm. The farm got much larger. I think we probably added 10 other farms to it uh-huh. uh, by 1980. And so the farm was rather large mm-hmm. for what most people did. And here we were both working full-time at other places. Yep. We made the decision then that a, some somebody... I said, you know, we just can't do this working daylight to dark seven days a week. Yep. And so Linda said, well, I'll, I'll keep going to school uh-huh. and you, you run the farm and do everything that you need to do. Um, Cause our whole goal was to pay off debt that mm-hmm. we had as soon as we could possibly pay it off. And mm-hmm. so that was, that's been our theory. And uh, in 19, 19- 82 in 1983 something happened that really bothered me because we had become successful enough and planted a lot of trees and things like that Mm -hmm. we were having a hard time finding somebody to take our produce Mm -hmm. uh the most important thing for me was to sit on the telephone each morning and call maybe eight or ten small processors and say what will you take from me today Mm -hmm. And you're basically going hat in hand, and they say, well, I'll take 10 tanks of cherries, or I'll take uh, six boxes of apples, or whatever it happened to be. Um, And it was perhaps the most difficult part of farming. I love the farming part. I love raising the fruit. I love doing it different ways that other people didn't do it. Uh, We may have been called a little crazy, but we didn't look at a farm as how much did you make on the entire farm at the end of the year we looked at every single block individually and said okay how much did you make or lose on a block mm-hmm. and my dad had a, uh, always was advising and he had a good comment he says you know you can you can break even on mm-hmm. bare ground yep. so if you actually have something that you're losing on you probably just better take that out and figure out and put something else in. Yeah. And if you're making something that's probably what you ought to plant yep. and so it was it wasn't a real complicated uh, idea, but uh-huh. but by the early '80s, we were uh, very successful and had a, at that time for us a lot of fruit. And uh, again, we were relatively young in the 1980s, um, and made a decision. And we couldn't find homes. And we, Linda and I, and Linda's my wife and my my best friend forever, um, sat at a kitchen table 
and said, what are we going to do? And she says, let's just do it ourselves. Mm -hmm. We can process our own fruit. And I said, well, what do you want to call the business? She says, I want to call it something so everybody knows that we did it. Uh They'll know if it's good. They'll know if it's bad. And she says, we're only going to succeed because too many of the processors around here do a really poor job at what they do. She Uh says, we're going to put our name on there. That's how Peterson Farms came about. Yep. Because back in the old days, there was another brand called Petridge Farms. Okay. okay. And uh, we said, okay, that's what we're going to do. Uh, year number one, we handled only the product off our farm. Um, and it was pretty successful. Mm-hmm. We actually made more money doing it ourselves. Um, and then we would have, if we'd taken it to someone else and, and had them uh, buy the fruit from us we took all the risk mm-hmm. um we were really light on uh people uh linda ran first shift i kind of was there first and second shift but really ran second shift and our daughter sarah who was 12 at the time uh was in charge of quality control at age 12 and second okay. shift uh, we'll talk more about working yeah. young in a little bit but um we ended up uh, it worked really well. We had other people who, who, uh, did some things with us and, uh, but we really had no full-time employees on our farm, mm-hmm. no, no full-time employees. So it, it would be, we'd find whoever was available and could work on a, on a given day. Um, that went okay for the first couple of years. And the second year, there were more people joined us. And next year, more people joined mm-hmm. us. And I say they were really small farmers. So we still had the vast majority of the fruit. 1986. Uh, what sometimes happens in the fruit business, if you have a storm, uh, the fruit can't be harvested because it's too bad. And uh, we had that storm in 1986. And all of the other processors in our area said, we're not taking any cherries. Mm-hmm. And Linda and I looked at each other and said, well, that doesn't work. We got all these bills that we need to yeah. pay. And so we said, okay, we're going to, we're going to do cherries. Uh, we did cherries approximately one. We had no electronics. Yeah. One third of the cherries were picked out of the line as they were going by because they were bad Okay. because the wind had bruised them so yeah. severely that they, they were bad. We got two thirds back out the other end mm. at what at the time was the highest per pound cherry price in history. Mm-hmm. So when that happened, we said, wow, we turned a disaster by really working hard Mm -hmm. into something else. That kind of maybe made some more neighbors say, you know, they may have something going there because we didn't get any return. And it's obvious the way they're spending money on their farm and everything. Uh They made money. Yep. Uh, at the same time, we decided, okay, we're going to expand the small cherry line from a building that we were rented to we build our own building. And and I'm just going to con- start condensing here. Yeah. We were in that building for three years, uh, added a group of growers so that, yes, maybe we were 40 or 50% of the production, but we had another 10 growers or 15 growers who were the other half or more than half. Um Linda's theory that you always do your best job led us to develop technology. Because when we saw in 1986, 
that boy, you needed something electronically to help sort the yeah. bad cherries out. We started working on that, mm-hmm. uh, and we tried different things, and we found some things that worked. Mm-hmm. When customers were complaining that the entire cherry industry did a really poor job of getting the cherries out, the pit, the pits, pits, pits out of the cherries. Um, we worked with someone and developed the first ever pit detection. Uh, what it allowed us to do was expand the processing part of our business because other people said, whoa, you're paying more than anybody else. We're going to bring our fruit to you. Um, and yes, we were able to change the specifications for tart cherries, sweet cherries. And then at that time, one of our largest customers is a customer by called Sara Lee in Traverse City. And they said, well, why don't you go in the apple business? Because we'll buy your apples because we just can't get apples. We can get now we can get the cherries from you uh-huh. that are really good. And they were they were the first persons to sign up with us. And we were supplying at one time most of their cherries. Um, and I, I went home and talked to Linda. I said, you know, I, I really don't want to do apples. Because it's right during bird season. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it was great. Not processing apples, you know, having apples, yep. you could haul them to somebody else because I could quit early yep, you and, and you could go out with your bird dog. Because I, when I was first teaching, uh, got the first bird dog at that point and just absolutely loved hunting grouse and woodcock here in Oceana County. And it, uh, it, it you know, we've talked about it. The people that were older than me said, you should have seen it before. And all I'm, I'm telling younger people, you should have seen it when I was saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but it was, it was fantastic. So what ended up in the business uh, ended up making a whole bunch of changes and basically going from not an apple processor to the largest apple processor in the United States. Mm-hmm. Not really a cherry processor, the largest cherry processor, the largest sweet cherry mm-hmm. processor. Um, one more thing that really changed um was when we decided to do fresh cut apples mm-hmm. and one of our very important customers at that time uh, mcdonald's said they wanted to put some kind of fresh apples fresh fruit mm-hmm. in all of their restaurants available year-round and they said what could we do and we said there's only one thing and that's that's fresh apples yeah um they said do you know how to do fresh apples i said we practiced we can do it we just couldn't figure out how to sell them because yeah. fresh apples meant they were sliced. And, and at that point in history, people were looking at an apple and saying, why, why would I buy one that's sliced when I can go buy a whole one cheaper and cut it up? Yep. Well, fast food really made the difference because fast food was people weren't buying an apple at fast food. Yep. They wanted to buy cut up apples and they particularly wanted it for young children so they didn't want the skin on. Yep. And so when they said... Uh, will you do this we said yes a lot of we've we've always said yes whenever customers say can you do this yes we can we'll figure it out um and we set up the first uh fresh cut processing plant in michigan and learned how to do fresh cut apples Mm -hmm. Uh, it was very successful and today we do it's the largest fresh cut apple plant in the world um, and do millions of bags, individual bags of apples every week. Mm-hmm. Um, so Peterson Farms 
grew and the farms, our farms grew. And I'm going to back up to, to all three of our children, Sarah. I mean, at the age of 12, she was running a second shift on quality control. Uh, Aaron, when he was old enough to drive a tractor, was driving a tractor. He was driving forklifts. He was, he was doing everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a legal opinion from a lawyer that says, as long as we own the business, there was no age restriction on, on people working. So, uh, your brother was working at the cherry plant when he was 12. Mm-hmm. You, you were working on the farm much before 12. And I'm sure you were probably working in the cherry plant by the time you were 12. Yep. Yep. Uh, that was the work ethic. You worked hard, you hunted and played hard, mm-hmm. but you were very conscious that, uh, you had to do, had to, had to work hard. Um, when you made a decision uh, that you really didn't want to go in the family business, be in the family business any longer, uh, Linda and I were very supportive because we also believed that you had the work ethic that whatever you wanted to do, you were going to be successful at. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm very happy to to see all the things that have happened between then and now. And it's been about 10 it's, years. It's almost 10. Yeah. It's I was going to say this, about... this August will be 10. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And um, one of the other things that when you changed careers and got in the outdoor business, you told me, Dad, you only have so many good years left in you. Mm -hmm. Um, That led to one time we were in British Columbia. And I was going up a mountain and a guide I had with me must have eaten some bad food or something because he was he was, he was hurt. His, his name was Jerry uh-huh. <laughs> and he said okay see the top of that mountain will you just meet me at the top of the mountain i said okay so i crawled to the top of that mountain and there was snow the snow was at sometimes three or four foot deep and so you're plowing through snow and eventually got to the top of the mountain and i was sitting up there and it was a beautiful view it was nice and clear and I sat up there and I said, you know, I had what I, I called it my top of the mountain experience. Yep. That, whoa, how many years can you crawl up a, to a mountain and go up three to four foot deep snow and make it all the way up there and then sit and enjoy the view? Mm-hmm. So we talked about that and decided from that point on, there was going to be more than the once in a great while hunt outside of Michigan, mm-hmm. do more than just hunt Michigan deer and Michigan woodcock, and mm-hmm. Michigan ducks, and Michigan grouse. Um, so you're telling me I only have so many good years in me. Uh, I'm sure I worded it a little bit better. No, that. that's exactly what you said. Exactly how I went. <laughs> yeah, okay. Word, <laughs> and uh, now I've already reached to where you thought probably I was going to be at the end. And it's, it is, you know, I found at age 75 going into 76. It's not as easy to climb mountains as you as you remember I mean, when, it, we, when we were in British Columbia. We were, last year. Dad and I went back to British Columbia on a stone sheep hunt this past year, and and Dad, I mean, we got up and we hiked miles every day. And anybody that sheep hunted knows how tough that is. And at seventy five, Dad did it for nine days. Um, unfortunately, it was super warm and crappy weather, so we weren't weren't successful. But Dad got up and did it nine days carrying his own backpack. And and at seventy five, I hope I can do that. Well, if you also remember, remember when we got back down, he said, Mark. I'm officially old. 
Yeah, and he officially <laughs> he retired from sheep hunting as he got down on the, officially he handed in the, uh, the retirement paperwork. So. <laughs> so I said, okay, I can still do some mountains, but they've got to be a little more gentle. Yep, yep. <laughs> Not that rocky step that you can fall off and go down an awful long ways. Yep. Um, again, it, as you get older, you don't have quite the sense of balance. Um, but, uh, you know, we were at 11,500 yep. feet yep. in Ethiopia just a couple months ago. And... Okay, I'm, I'm glad I was successful early, yeah, and I didn't yeah. have to go up didn't and down the mountain. Up again. Yep. <laughs> I yep. didn't have to go up the mountain many, many times. But uh, so, and you and I have some more hunts on smaller mountains. Smaller mountains. Yet yeah. this fall. Easier yep. mountains. Yeah. yeah. So well, I think um, one thing I, I mean, obviously, I get asked a lot on the on how you grew so quick and and did so much in a short period of time, um, and I think one of the things that you've covered today is that work ethic right like yes like it's not just everybody sees what they see on social media or on tv with me but it's i've got a hell of a team behind me and and we do the work and i we kind of we did the same mentality right like you guys instilled it if that's what the customer wants that's what you have to give the customer and that's what we've done at wta through our tags through our oa through our owned outfitters through the brands that we own ready nutrients i mean avs like uh, buck bourbon right they've, they've all been they've all started because there's been a customer need right and the customer yeah. need and then you know when we start we're not perfect but what we do is we listen to the customers and we kind of we, we build our business that way right like we don't want complaints we want everybody to come back and keep coming back and that's the same way that that peterson farms did it for all the years that i was there um and one thing dad didn't cover through Peterson Farms is uh, when I started, I started on our actual farm. So we were mowing orchards and so forth at eight and spraying and, and doing all this stuff. But dad had me work every position in, in our processing plant. Um, that's from sanitation. That's that's on the line. That's uh, working the electronic sorters, forklifts, unloading, loading, like receiving, like you name it. And at the time, that wasn't fun at all. Like I hate, I, I hated that. That was miserable. And that was day shift, night shift. That was any any shift in between, right? And like he's like, well, you got to work the month of sanitation. And just think about it, like that's that's not that's not fun. But I look at it now as is less than a month away from forty, and that helped shape me to realize and build me for what I do now on a, a day in day basis. Guess what? There's lots of times in my day that there's stuff I don't want to do, right? right. But you do, but you do it because you realize you have to. You grew up in a family, Mark, that liked challenges. Mm-hmm. Uh, we like to do something that no one's ever done mm-hmm. or do it better than other people do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was instilled in you at an early age. And when you look at how successful WTA is in your other operations, you follow the same theory mm-hmm. that you're, like you said, you're never satisfied. You always want to do better. And that usually means just like, in our business, that means that you're adding to it. Yep. You're not just doing the same thing. Because yep. if you do the same thing over and over and over and over, eventually you're not going to be successful. Mm-hmm. Because your costs are going to go up faster than your income. Yep. So the only way you can make the program work is you have to say, every year I know my costs are going up. There's a certain rate of inflation. Mm-hmm. You have to make, you can't get that same rate of inflation out of the same finished product. Nope. So what your costs are going up in the hunting operation, you can't raise that from each hunter. Mm-mm. 
you've got the only way to do it is to spread the people mm-hmm. and do more, do more different things. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're doing. Yeah. That's that's how you're being successful. Why do you take on the different challenges you do? It's because of who you are. Mm-hmm. You always want to try something that's different. Um, and, you know, it helps that uh, from that first day uh, when we were duck hunting that, that you're a tremendous shot and mm-hmm. just have the, the natural ability. Um, but you've also said, I don't want to just do the easy things. Mm-hmm. I want to do all the hard things. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a lot of satisfaction. It makes it, life very rewarding. Yeah. And, and getting that first a- animal, animal from Africa or to take and drop uh, your chucker at what distance were you in New Zealand? A good 80, 80 yards, 85 yards. It was, it was out there. The yeah. Back of a lead. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that's, that's it. It's the satisfaction of reaching your goal Mm -hmm. and so you you have i i enjoy uh i'm totally retired from peterson farms and have been for for many years uh our oldest son aaron and our daughter sarah uh, are the two main leaders at peterson farms my wife linda still works a little part-time there but uh at 75. At, 70. at 75 works perfect. Yeah, which turned 76 a few days ago. Yeah. But, <laughs> but so anyway, life has been good. There's so many, I, as I'm going to tell you, following this theory, I only have so many good years left in me. Uh-huh. Now I'm extending that for the next 10. Well, that's good. Okay. Another now 10 we'll, after that. Okay. Well, then yeah. we'll, we'll worry about the next 10 after that. Yep. Well, you, meant, you mentioned Africa, so we'll kind of end here, got, just kind of going over. So the last 10 years, um, when I was in, say 18 to, to to late 20s right dad always planned the the trips we would go on it'd be one trip a year usually it'd be the dakotas or we went blacktail hunting in alaska elk hunting in wyoming and dad dad handled all the planning and everything on that and that obviously well almost 10 years ago when i came into this it switched right so i yep. i started handling all the all the planning we always joke like i never got to carry my passport until i think i was 30 in the airport <laughs> when we went through and now i now i got to carry dad's passport right you gotta make sure you got everything when you get to the the desk otherwise you're looking through all your pockets and dad's been known to look through some pockets for his passport um so now we've been arranging the trips and we've we've been able to travel to some amazing places africa being one of them that you mentioned um and i know you love africa what uh, was your, like your first when we went to Africa, South Africa, the first time, which I think 99% of the people go to South Africa mm-hmm. as their first, first African experience. What, what was, when you first got there, I mean, now if you look back, I mean, growing up in a rural farm in Michigan and being able to go and hunt in Africa, what was your first experience of hunting there? Well, here, your big game animal is the deer, mm-hmm. the white-tailed deer. Mm-hmm. When we went to Africa, what I didn't realize was there were all these different ass animals mm-hmm. that could be on your list. And yes, I, I don't remember what our package was. It was a very, at the time, reasonable package. Yeah. And I, I remember Africa wasn't getting a lot of hunters. And mm-hmm. so they, a lot of guys had lowered their prices. So we had a very, very good package and went to Africa. And uh, we each went with our own guide mm-hmm. and came back after the first day and looked at each other. And I, I, I think you, if I'm, if I'm, you tell me if I'm right. I think you said, I shot three today, Dad. Uh-huh. And I said, I actually shot four. Yeah. No, it was, it was right <laughs> after the, hey, we're going to start to slow talk in the morning. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, we stacked them up. And uh, Africa is, 
is so great. And yes, South Africa is a good place to start. And that's where I started with uh, my grandson, Alec. Um, but other more traditional call it, call it, call it wild africa right? wild africa. Wild, wild traditional hunting africa zambia zimbabwe oh, uh, yeah. tanzania where we were at in ethiopia like those are those are the wild wild african safari type places and absolutely love those uh is it uh is it dangerous yes it is uh do you hunt really hard yes but truthfully you really don't know what's around the corner yeah and yeah. it can be something you want or it could be something that uh is there's no hunting of mm-hmm. or it it can be a trophy that it for your for, is maybe the biggest one you'll ever see in mm-hmm. your life mm-hmm. and so that's the fun about africa you get up early you do a lot of walking uh, and spend a good day you go back usually to a place where you can have a hot shower and, and uh, a glass of wine a good meal and to bed again real early. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so going on a real African safari is my favorite hunt. Yeah. It, people are friendly, um, had some really good experiences. Uh, there's, a, there's a real challenge there to be successful, uh, not take do things the easy way. Mm-hmm. And, I, and you've always been, I know the way you hunt is... The best way is on your feet mm-hmm. and just hiking across country and seeing what you see. Yep, yep. So b- besides Africa, what have been some of your favorite spots that you've been able to travel and experience hunting? Um, I Well, I'll use different examples. I love duck hunting mm-hmm. uh, at your operation down in uh, Hermosillo, mm-hmm. Mexico, in Sonora. Uh, it, we had a great, yep. uh, we were absolutely great duck hunts there. Mm-hmm. But also... Uh, had the great upland hunting. Yeah. And it, that was maybe the best upland hunting yeah. I've ever had in my life. Wild, wild, true wild quail. Um, I mean, it's you can't be, it's crazy to think about it, but Gamble's quail in Sonora, Mexico, at, at where we have Muy Grande, it's the best wild quail hunting there is in, in the world. It's right there, and, and it's one of those hidden gems, and then you can go after elegant quail. But the gambles quail, just the numbers that you see, because they don't have the predators and they don't have the hunting pressure, that it's just the best wild quail hunting there is. Yeah, it's that, that you know, I've, I've enjoyed a lot of the different things. I really enjoyed having our dogs and and going after the North American upland mm-hmm. slam. Uh, that was fantastic, because we spent several months together Travel time in a truck, a lot of time in a truck, yep. um, and a lot of fast food meals. Mm-hmm. But the experience was absolutely great, and our dogs made it through. They got beat up, and but they made it through. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those experiences that I'll I'll, I'll have with me till till very very end because yep. it was it was so much fun, particularly when. Our dogs really didn't have that much hunting experience. Mm-hmm. Two of them had only hunted in Michigan after yeah. Krause and Woodcock. Um, and one other one had some experience, but not for yeah. all the different birds we went after. So that was a great experience. Um, you were, you got the entire slam. I didn't get to the entire slam. Yeah, you got but, pretty close. But got pretty close. And it, and it really didn't matter because 
I never, if I look back to when I was bird hunting as a young, young man, I would have never thought I'd even have the opportunity to try to get all of the upland in North America. Mm-hmm. And so it was a, it was a fantastic opportunity. And the places we got to go, oh. to like I still go back to the ptarmigan hunting in Alaska is oh. just, yes. it's just phenomenal, right? Like yes. you never, never think of going there. It's so tough to get there and all the, all the spots along the way. So what's been your, one of the least favorite places or things that you, where we've went hunting to where, where I come and you've said yes. And then you get there and you're like, man, I should have, this was not one for me. I think uh, I know what it is. So we'll see. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, not that I didn't get a fantastic animal, but the people we were hunting with up near Hudson's Bay, uh, that when we were going after polar bear and walrus, um, I didn't really, the, the people just really didn't have, I'm used to the work ethic. ethic, Most guides, most guides are, Gun haul. Yep. And they, if they'll they'll quickly learn how hard do you want to work and mm-hmm. if that's how hard they're going to work. Yep. And uh, so as far as the hunt and the yeah. success, that was that was one of my top hunts. Yep. But as far as the background, uh, I, there was a lot of time waiting around. There was a lot of time that, you know, we're up at 6 o'clock and you don't do anything till 11. Yeah, on the early day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, early day. Yeah. Um, I, I got to admit the... Uh, this last August uh, in uh, British Columbia mm-hmm. on the mountains, that <laughs> that was it was probably it was probably a, yeah it was probably that, a little that, tough. that that was tough and uh, so I don't know there's you know if I look back through the years uh, both of us have been remarkably successful mm-hmm. when we go hunting. Uh, that isn't all luck. A lot yeah, of a lot of it with is the right people in the right you, time in the right, right camp and the right, right camp. And it's it's saying okay, I'm 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 not going back and we're not taking naps during the day. We start yeah. out early and we work we work all day long. Yep. And uh, so, which one were you thinking? All right, you didn't even say it. I was thinking you were going to say Tajikistan. Um, Tajikistan. Yeah. yeah, Tajikistan wasn't. It wasn't. Um, you know, again, very. It was a very successful hunt, uh, but you know, again, it was just totally different mm-hmm. from what we'd experienced before. Oh, I can I can say one thing that was was tough. As you know, I never took when we went up uh, in Peru and went up into the oh, yeah. an, into the Andes after ducks. Yeah. I just said, hey. I'm not even taking my shotgun. Yeah, was, we went. <laughs> so we were in Peru and we hunted the coast for three days at what, seventy-five feet elevation. Yeah, I mean, we were like right that. at sea level, and then we drove up to over fifteen thousand five hundred feet. Is where we took that picture with the sign, and we were hunting over sixteen thousand feet, and it was you, you lost your breath quickly coming from hunting sea level, and then we're I mean, shoot, where we live in Michigan, what are we two hundred feet elevation here? It's hard. Yeah. Uh, 400, 400 feet, yeah, 400 feet elevation is hardly, hardly anything here. So that was definitely one of the challenging, challenging ones. I thought the Tajikistan would have got you just because of the long drive and the food and everything that went in. Yeah, but ag- again, uh, we're lucky enough to actually have good shots. Yeah, good uh, shots, good guides. Uh, and good, good guides. And, uh, yeah, it, it the travel, I think it was closer to three days before you – time you leave do you get there yeah and there were a lot of hours and vehicles uh-huh. and 
Um, but, um, and the food was good. Yeah. And uh, yeah. It wasn't great. For where we were at. It's, it, for yeah. where we were at, the food was amazing. Right? Yeah. You're in the middle of a, a nowhere. Yeah. yeah. So, and, uh, you know, it it was interesting in the fact that we're just across the water and you could see Afghanistan on the other side of the, yep. of the, other side of the water. Yep. Um, so we were in a, a wilder part of the country. Yep. Yeah. No, that's fun. So this year, um, Dad and I have a, have a, uh, a few hunts planned. We've got, obviously, Kentucky for whitetail. Um, and then one that I'm really look actually two of them that I'm really looking forward to. The first one being Croatia. Um, I know you've said you wanted to go there for a long time, and then um, we're going to go ibex hunting in Turkey after that. And the other one that um, I need to stop kicking the can down the road and get booked is to actually to go and hunt in Norway. Yes, and I know you. I know you want to do that, so that's mm-hmm. what we get. We got to get planned and and Roger on the team. So at WTA, we actually have a European hunt specialist now, Roger, and uh, I tell you what, he can get you detailed and and after we've had, we've had him on the team, right, he's got a bunch of special spots. And there's something about hunting in Europe that I really, really I, like. It's the history. I think For me, it's the history part of it, right? Because it's been done for so many hundreds of years there and the history behind it and just the way that they hunt. So when we were in Austria this last year and in Hungary, um, the thing that was remarkable was when you would go to a restaurant in a rural area, they all had game meat. Mm-hmm. Because even though the majority of the people didn't hunt, hunting and eating game was something that They've is part of their culture. Part of their culture. It's it's a it's a it's a totally different. And and uh, I knew we were in a really staying in a great city when the tractor went down the main street and was <laughs> right next to the restaurant. Um, but we did eat what we ate a lot of game in restaurants. Um, we ate what I called more traditional food yeah it's it's food for example i'm sure when you went to new zealand you eat a different type of food it's a it's it's a how do you say it more not, not, earthy, more traditional earthy. it's a traditional it's more right everything's grown mm-hmm. from like you're eating vegetables that you can tell came from the garden right yeah. and the yep. meat you can tell where it yep. came from and the bread like everything it's not not store-bought i don't know traditional is the right word but it's not store-bought yep. or, or it, genetically modified stuff i guess you could say it's kind of you know, the way I grew up with our family would only go to the store once a month mm-hmm. uh, to when we were married, we did the, we had the garden. We, we had the root cellar. We did my Linda did canning. We lived more of a traditional. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually that's, you know, <laughs> we no longer have a garden. It's gone. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But that's what I'm, I think when we were in Hungary and a lot of places in Europe, particularly when you go into the hunting areas, mm-hmm. there they still have that quality. Yeah. And did we, you know, we were up hunting uh, in the Alps, and there were a lot of people up there hiking. Mm-hmm. There were no negative connotations because these people weren't hunting. Yeah. They were just kind of like giving you the the yep. the giving you the, the thumbs up mm-hmm. because you're out there doing it. Yeah. So even though that's non-hunters encouraging, knowing that the only reason they have these animals here is that hunters come in yeah, yeah. and pay the money mm-hmm. to hire the people and do all the things that need to be done. Yep. And it's a it's a it's a more traditional place to hunt, and I, I really enjoy it. Not other hand too. I I love to travel in Europe, and uh, the food has been yeah, r- really really good. Food has been very good. Yeah. 
Well, thank you for finally sitting down and, and telling the story. I hope everybody in, enjoyed this. It won't be the last time that we have um, Dad on here, and I hope everybody has a great Father's Day, and then make sure to give everybody a hug. And I love you, Dad. Thanks for sitting down. I love you, too. Thanks for all your support and downloads. If you like this episode, please go and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, as that always helps. Do you want to book that hunt of a lifetime? Then give the team at Worldwide Trophy Adventures a call at 1-800-346-8747. Or if you want to start a tags portfolio for those limited entry tags, give the team a call at 1-800-775-8247. Enjoy your journey.